Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. You may or may not know that it is possible to be a clinical psychologist but not necessarily have the doctorate title. That might well be because you qualified prior to 1995 where actually in the UK clinical psychology was a master's taught um, subject and so the doctorate wasn't wasn't conferred at the end of that qualification. But of course it might be because you did your training in a different country where the doctorate wasn't granted as part of that training. But what I know is that um, all of those people are still highly skilled and qualified and absolutely do brilliant work. Um, So today we're going to be talking to somebody who is a clinical psychologist but qualified in a different um, country and then came to the UK and hearing about their journey. We're also going to be thinking about perfectionism and whether it's a good thing, whether it's a bad thing and what we can do about it to be more compassionate to ourselves. Hope you find it so useful and I'll look forward to catching up with you on the other side. Hi, just want to welcome along my guest for today, Michaela Thomas. Hi, Michaela. Hi, Marianne. So good to have me as a guest. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you. So you and I know each other. Um, We first met on social media, I think, didn't we, in a qualified psychologist network. But um, yeah, we we ended up doing that thing where you slip into each other's inboxes and then never leave. Mm, yeah you're the most uh, most reliable reply to my mailing list comes from you <laughs> so I, I know especially if I do something slightly more sort of thought-provoking or something in the in the text uh for the subject headline then I know Marianne's going to take the bite and she's going to reply I do I love replying to people's mailing list emails and that said if anyone listening to this gets my mailing list email it's okay to reply we, we like that we, we like, love it we love that yeah I think people think oh it's just it's just you know it's a one-sided communication but it is an email you are allowed to reply Mm. so you are also a clinical psychologist aren't you Michaela indeed I am actual qualified psychologist love that Love that. If in case you're not sure what the reference to actual psychologist is, um, I did an episode with another of our friends and colleagues, um, Tara, Dr. Tara Quinchirillo. Um, and she um, is a counselling psychologist, but we think about actual psychologists as professional psychologists with um 
a qualification and a registration, you know, being a qualified and um, I suppose in some ways scrutinized psychologist, meaning that we adhere to the professional code of conduct and standards um, of our profession. And I think this is obviously a bugbear of both, both yours and mine and Tara's of how there are charlatans out in the media talking about psychological concepts without being a qualified clinical counseling, health, whatever, psychologist. So that's why we are the actual psychologists because we do have those professional uh, standards and boundaries. Yeah, I love that. And I, I'm so proud to be a professionally qualified psychologist. And I know you feel the same as well. Mm. Anyway, this Absolutely. is an aside. This is an aside. <laughs> We're here today to think about a variety of things. But because you are not originally from the UK, but you do work and practice here now, I thought it would be really lovely if you're able to share a little bit with our listeners and our watchers over on YouTube um, about how you came to be a clinical psychologist and how you came to practicing in the UK and and how the transition has been from one country to another. Hmm, sure. Um, it's not been an easy ride by any means. Um, I was born in Sweden and I did my my doctoral training there or sort of the equivalent of your doctoral training, I should say. This is something that we've talked about before so it triggers my imposter syndrome that uh, I quote unquote only get a master's for the equivalent training to what you have in the UK. So we don't actually award a doctorate. And I know historically that wasn't the case in the UK either. It's more of a recent development, isn't it? So Although I am a registered and qualified psychologist where I hold professional um, registration in both countries, both Sweden and the UK, I can't call myself a doctor. So I'm not Dr. Michaela Thomas um, because we then do a longer program where you have the undergrad and the postgrad rolled into one. So that's the five year psychology program. Whereas when you get into that, you are also expecting to come out the other side of that as a psychologist in training. So you don't have to do the sixth final year um, where it's basically a supervised post, but you are no longer attached to university. So you do 12 months, not like a placement. You are working, you are salaried, you are a you know one of the staff members, but you just have to have um, someone supervise you. And that supervisor then has to sort of just sign off on your 12 months at the end of it to see that you're, you know, you're suitably... Um, able to practice independently after that so it's a six-year process but that means that our bottleneck isn't you know in between the undergrad and the postgrad like it is here um it is really really difficult to get into that first year and the the benefit of that I suppose is that once you're in you know you're gonna if you manage the five years you're gonna come out the other end as a psychologist in training and then qualified psychologist after the sixth year Whereas the downside is that there's a there's a lot of psychology training to go through if you're not quite sure that that's what you want. If you drop out after the first uh, three years, you can then account that to be a BSc in psychology. So you can kind of take that part qualification away if you then feel like I don't want to do clinical training. I want to use psychology as a base for other kind of training. For instance, I want to go into business management or whatever it might be. So it's not a waste, quote unquote, if you feel like I'm, uh, you know, partway through the process, this is not for me, when you get to the more applied psychology and your placements, which are in the final two years or three years. It's a blur. This was a long time ago. I was 19 when I first got in. So that process was interesting as well, because on my cohort, I was the very youngest. Um, it was really rare to get in that early because I got into my on my first attempt. Um, 
I had people who were like 45 on the course who obviously this was their second career and that's quite common in, in Sweden um, because it's not starting sort of with a with an undergrad as such so yeah it was a really interesting way of learning and there was lots of practical learning on the job we had an in-house clinic at the university department we then had people from the general public who could come and see the psychologists in training and it was run like as if you having your own clinic so that was really helpful because it had to manage not just the clinical issues but also managing your time you know as if you were in a um, workplace with other psychologists you know the classic room fights um who's overrunning their slot and taking someone else's room space classic love it very public sector um and I found it really uh, helpful as a way to get a real feel for the profession so when I qualified I worked for about six months in a camp service in Sweden uh, specializing in um adolescence uh, with depression and anxiety so for a while, I've been looking at IAPT in the UK. I sort of had this dreamy aspiration that IAPT was going to be everything that I've ever wanted. Um, so I moved to the UK. I got into the IAPT program. Um, and then I did seven years in two different London IAPT services uh, before I sort of took the plunge to fully work with my private practice that I now run solely online. So the Thomas Connection is my practice. Um, so that's sort of a little bit around how I've got here, but there's a bit of a chunk there missing, which is how on earth did I get from Sweden to the UK? How did I get my qualifications acknowledged? And that did take a couple of years for HCPC or HPC, as it was called at the time, uh, to acknowledge that my training was equivalent. So did you have to do that before you got to the UK? You couldn't sort of stump, like show up and then be like, oh, I quite fancy working as a qualified psychologist. Well, this is, this is exactly why I found it so helpful to come in through the IAP programme, because at that point, I was then given the permission to be a trainee again. I was a, a CBT therapist in training. Uh, obviously, they've hired me, recruited me, knowing I was a qualified psychologist, but I couldn't work with that title. I was a trainee CBT therapist. So yes and no. So yeah, I had to do a lot of things before I left. Um, the HCPC have a lot of hoops that you have to work and jump through in terms of showing that the training you've gone through is the equivalent so i had to single-handedly translate about 80 pages of swedish um course curriculum information so you know what every single five-week course even i've taken included and what the learning objectives were etc and then get that approved from the university again so sending it back to them to say does this uh translation match your your objectives and so i basically sent about two kilos of paperwork to HCPC and that also included a, a well-being check that you had to go and see a private doctor to who assessed you whether you were suitable or whether I was suitable to practice independently you know as a psychologist and the doctor just looked at me like well I could check your hearing and your your sight and your reflexes but I have no idea how to assess that you can actually practice so shall I do that and she took 80 quid um so the bizarre things were also I had to get someone to attest to me being of a a good standing in society or something to that extent. I can't remember. This is a long time ago. And I was like 15 years ago. Like a moral, um, moral standing. Thing, yeah, that... something like that. And you had to have yeah. someone who had known you for at least 
10 years or something like a big chunk and I had to attest to you being of you know a sound mind as opposed to be able to practice in this delicate profession so I had to find you know what my oldest friend is a uh, a lawyer so she had to write and she's making lots of rude jokes as she was writing it but attest to that I was sound to practice so all of these things put together in a portfolio similar to how perhaps people put together a a portfolio uh, within IAPT within that training as well to to showcase your uh, knowledge skills and aptitudes attitudes ksa yeah knowledge skills and attitudes so i had to do one of those as well um so there was a lot of paperwork and i think without the tenacity of i'm doing this i've been given the post i'm gonna i'm gonna go for it uh, it wouldn't have worked out i think so for anyone who's listening who comes from a foreign country again it's very difficult to say what it would be like for you. This is, you know, well over a decade ago that I came to the UK. It was about 12 years ago. Um, but it's helpful to have a dialogue with uh, with the HPC um, as well about what's what are they looking for? You know, so when I first applied to get my practitioner psychologist, um, they passed passed it back and said, "You're missing, you're missing something." Uh, was pretty much. I was like, "Well, what am I missing? Can you be a bit more clearer?" Um, so then I went push. They sort of said, well, we need you to have more practical experience of older adults. So none of my placements had been with older adults in Sweden. They've all been with adolescent, uh, children, adolescent and uh, adults. So then I was given a, uh, a couple of clients within IAPT in my service that I was with, documented all of that, sent it back in, and that was enough. So just, yeah, don't take no for an answer. Ask for why. Um, what's missing? How do I add to this? What's what's the kind of what complementing information are you looking for? And then don't give up. Have lots of tenacity. Seek support from friends. Allow it to take a long time. I think it probably took me two years of actually being in the UK before I got my qualification. At that point, I would already qualified as a CBT therapist for the second time because I was already qualified CBT therapist from Sweden. But, you know, you'd have to know that you want to be here for that to feel worthwhile. Absolutely. It sounds like the HCPC kind of will tell you if you push the right buttons. But, of course, when we first started training, um, the BPS, the British Psychological Society, were our professional body. And that's changed. Certainly uh, just before I qualified, I think it changed to the HCPC. Have the BPS or are the BPS any use in guiding this process for people that live outside the UK, to your knowledge? Um, The honest answer is that when I came to move here in 2010, the overseas route for applying was closed. They were just not accepting it. So since then, I've just never bothered. I've never applied for the BPS because it's not seemed to serve my ongoing career and my you know the professional skills I have I might feel differently about it now or in the future but it's just never really felt like anything I needed because I already had to have HCPC and I had to have BABCP uh, as my governing body for the CBT therapy so I sort of felt well what does the BPS add if I'm really honest about it what does it add apart from you know another professional fee to pay so I just haven't because it wasn't a route that was available and and open to me in 20 well I moved in 2010 but I've been looking at this for years before that so from about 2007 and it just wasn't an access route for me so I found a way in which was through IAPT and then added the other bits uh, as I went along. Great thank you Uh, and what what was the appeal of the UK for you other than, you know, having a crystal ball and knowing that you'd meet someone and have a family and, you know, live your happily ever after? Why the UK? Why was that 
an appeal to you? Yeah, well, um, I'd always liked London. Um, and who doesn't like uh, a major metropolis? Uh, but it was also, I mean, I wanted to get a good career. Um, I was obviously recently qualified and I'd uh, I'd seen some people like John Wheatley and Glenn Waller, people who were sort of CBT therapists who were also involved in IAPT. They'd come for workshops to Sweden and I'd been speaking to Glenn Waller about it and what the program looked like and, you know, what's the difference between sort of going for the CBT therapy route versus the clean psych route. And I, at the time, really loved therapy and I felt that the way in via IAPT felt more like I was able to use the skills that I, I had and wanted. And I really loved the initiative of, of improving access to psychological therapy. We are, you know, we have we were doing primary care psychology in Sweden as well as well. And it was sort of starting to develop, but I liked what David Clark had been doing with IAPT. Now having worked in it, a slightly different story, but that would be another podcast episode, I'm sure. Um, but I just I just felt the passion for that and wanting to be part of that system. And I had been having long distance with someone for three years who at that point was based in London. So I felt that, you know, if I get the right job, I can move to London and we can, you know, make a go of this relationship. I didn't want to just move somewhere and not have something that was furthering my, you know, my purpose and what I trained for as well. So when that came up, I thought, well, everything is aligned. Now, my work in psychology has obviously lasted another 12 years, but that relationship did not. Um, and I met um, met who is now my husband um, not long after that in 20, 20, 2012. I met him in 2012. So, yeah, so that's that's lasted a decade. And so has my psychology interest, but not the relationship I moved to the UK for. I don't think know, I realized about, I, I don't think I realized about the other relationship. I love I love knowing that. It's, it's, it sounds romantic though, and you know, you had that in mind and you had like that um per perseveration and commitment mm. and drive. Uh, and that's so important in psychology. And even hearing you as you're talking about all the hoops that you needed to jump through, transcribing and translating and all of that for your for your work. That takes a great deal of drive and determination and commitment mm. as well. And so is it any wonder that in the profession of psychology, we've got quite a few perfectionistic traits, you know, um, because even people that have qualified in the UK, you know, the level of the academic rigor and the mm. clinical rigor and what we've got to balance alongside our lives and all of that and demonstrating and talking about our competencies we do have quite a few perfectionistic candidates and personnel within um within psychology don't we Michaela absolutely I think I was once told on a schema therapy training that two the most common schemas that we see showing up for psychologists is self-sacrifice and perfectionism and you know there's a reason why I built my entire practice to be specialized in in perfectionism because I've struggled with this in the past myself and I would say that I'm a recovering perfectionist I don't let it ruin my life anymore I don't let it sort of zap joy out of my life I don't let it impact the connection I have with others anymore because I found ways of working with myself self you know with self-compassion and behavioral change so I think it's so rife in psychologists I mean I I do coaching and therapy also for psychologists especially and they people come my way quite a lot with these kind of very hard on themselves very you know maybe low sense of confidence and self-belief uh, and this idea that 
almost like a sense of shame about wanting to have something for themselves as well as serving others especially as, as private business owners we can obviously see that you know i do need to charge i do need to make money off the work i do and when i work with other um private psychology um owners people who are in private practice they are entrepreneurs and they really struggle to kind of identify with this idea that i'm an entrepreneur i'm a business owner because we just want to serve and that perfectionism of selflessly self-sacrificing might mean that they have real lack of boundaries they might work you know three four evening clinics or having 30 clients across the week and and we see this also in in public health where perfectionism is something that makes people take you know i'm looking for the right word here excessive notes and spending an hour to update the clinical notes for for a, a patient and they might over prepare for supervision so that they spend two hours preparing for supervision and then feeling like i don't have enough time so we see a lot of the similar behaviors that you might see um in ocd because perfectionism can be a part driving part of ocd and some people with ocd um you know fall prey to kind of this idea that if i don't do it something bad will happen and we can have that imperfectionism as well so it's really helpful to maybe identify that perfectionism is like an umbrella term that can host lots of things underneath it so perfectionism as, as itself is not a clinical diagnosis from the dsm-5 or anything like that but it's very commonly associated with anxiety and depression and we as psychologists or aspiring psychologists in training are not immune to mental health problems like anxiety and depression so being aware of these patterns of perfectionism before they lead to stress burnout low self-esteem anxiety depression is really really important because there is no such thing as perfect and your training your career your application process, none of it can be perfect. It's almost ironic though, isn't it? Because if you didn't know what perfectionism was, sounds great. Like, mm. oh, perfectionism. Oh, and it sounds like you'd be really happy, doesn't it? Yeah, because the opposite will be perfect. is true. <laughs> but the opposite is true. And actually, like you said, they're quite often very highly stressed and quite miserable. They're not, they're not thriving, are they? They're they're, mm. you know tinkering tinkering is that word <laughs> faltering tweet like on the edge of burnout actually mm. flirting with burnout we often say mm, because it's, okay. it's sort of close to it um and it's almost like you're dancing on a deadline of of everything and it can be very difficult because that can lead to patterns of procrastination as well that when you are working so hard that you don't have a sustainable pace you're kind of going into boom or bust um, you know, actually, I'm doing everything and then I'm so exhausted, I can't be bothered to do anything or I might even feel low and flat. So in the up phase, when you're working on really hard or maybe completing your application or applying for jobs, you might then feel like, OK, I've got this sort of energy. But it can be a really adrenaline and cortisol fueled energy that makes you just kind of like burn all the cylinders. And then as a response to that, because your body eventually says no, um, you can then enter into a bit of a slump where you then kind of come into the bust and that's where we, you know, with repeated cycles like that can even find things like chronic pain. You know, your body has just literally depleted uh, all its resources. So you've run through all the cortisol that you have. And that can make it really difficult to get motivated, to take action. And procrastination can be something that follows that sort of pattern of overworking, burnout, procrastination. And then you add a bit of self-criticism into that. Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so lazy? Lazy is a very, very common word I hear 
what's wrong with me I'm not able to adult like adult other adults uh, and that self-criticism then leads you into maybe just kicking yourself up the bum and thinking I'm going to do it now but it's all motivated and fueled by criticism fear of failure um, almost like a punitive um, passionate unkindness is one of my clients um, terms that she used once it's almost like that you everything you do is then fueled by fear of not being good enough or fear of failing and then that's very different to being fueled by a sense of joy vitality meaning like this feels really purposeful to me and I feel uplifted and light-hearted when I do these things if you felt that way well, I wouldn't say that your perfectionism is causing any problems for you so we kind of think about the difference between functional or dysfunctional perfectionism or it's, it's working out for you so striving for excellence where you might then feel a sense of pride when you hit your ambitious goal you might feel a sense of joy at the things you've achieved that's very different you kind of think I'm highly skilled or I'm confident about what I do and I take great pleasure from it that's very different to striving for perfection which is associated with actually less likely to meet your goals or you meet them last minute and you meet them at the cost of your well-being so that's a really helpful distinction for anyone listening who has been thinking of the perfectionism, which is a great thing because life will be perfect if I perfected everything. And the reality is that it doesn't tend to be. And I see that in a few different ways, partly because we don't then take action to start. We have so much second guessing and doubt, um, overthinking it, trying to perfect everything. So then don't start. So someone listening might be like, well, I need to send three applications out and I just haven't sent any because they're not good enough. Right. So if you don't take action, you're not going to get any result. You miss 100 percent of the shots that you don't take, um, to quote Wayne Gretzky. Um, yes, I quoted a, um, an ice hockey player on a psychology podcast. So if you don't get started, don't take action. You won't get to results. So that's one thing I see the inertia and procrastination don't start or do start but it's not good enough and I'm not brilliant at it straight away so then people give up and they don't have that tenacity because it's not instantly rewarding and it's like and perfectionists want to be really brilliant at what they do immediately um or they get impatient or lastly they do finish it they get to that stretchy goal but they take no joy from it and can't savor their success they just look literally for the next mountain to climb even though they've just finished and they're exhausted so it doesn't sound that perfect, does it? Um, it really doesn't, no. And actually, even when we get on to what feels like the Holy Grail and the clinical psychology doctorate, sometimes depending on um, which course you pick, sometimes that can fuel perfectionism as well. So happily, I ended up on a course that doesn't give you um, grades for your assignments so it was pass or fail with the pass rate being 40 percent and so um for my assignments if I passed I was happy and there was no like yeah. what did you get you know what did I get where am I did I come bottom because everybody was just pass or fail and actually I found that really really useful in just aiming to to do enough you know so I wanted mm. to do you know I wanted to do well it wasn't like I was purposely thinking right well, I'm aiming for 40 percent um but you never got your percentages I just was aiming to mm. cover the areas I thought would be reasonable as the best of I could best ability that I had but of course when we are training we're managing a caseload we're managing you know peer relations on the cohort we're managing our real life which might be I moved for training so I had my real life where I was living 
mm. my real life with my home friends where I grew up. Um, at one stage I was dating, at one stage I was dating seriously, you know, different people, different strokes, different folks, plus the academic work, plus the relationship with uh, my clinical, my academic supervisor at uni, and then the staff that were teaching us and relationships with the people facilitating that. It's a lot, mm. a lot. And so for me, just that one thing, I think, helped me keep everything, all those plates spinning, you know, and balls in the air, because I didn't have to, you know, try not to be last, you know, mm. in, in my academic work. And not be not being graded on a curve like that either. It's, it's not so performative, but it's more about building the identity and the skill set of a scientist practitioner of, of a clinical psychologist we had the same in my training it was only pass or fail given and I then struggled when I moved to the UK and was doing the academic training that's part of IAP so obviously it was a year uh, PG dip with Royal Holloway and suddenly there was like distinctions and all sorts of things and I was like, I've, I've never had this before it was a real learning curve for me and knowing that I People in the UK are learning how to do application processes and interviews so much earlier than we do. You're evaluated for much earlier. You've come to understand this from like 11 year pluses and GCSEs and all sorts. So well, I didn't have that experience. So I didn't know how to academically write in a way to tick the boxes to get the higher marks. Uh, and that was really, really hard. And it's something that sort of, I'm going to say it out loud because that's what happens with shame. It makes us want to hide. So I'm going to say it that I only got, got, only got a pass in my uh, PG dip there. And has anyone ever asked to see it since? No. Am I a good psychologist? Yes, I've taught psychology at both UEL and UCL. I've run my own private practice. I obviously have been working as a senior psychologist in, in the NHS for seven years. I ran a um, a staff wellbeing clinic where I headed up the CBT service at Guy's and St. Thomas Hospital, you know, headhunted to do exactly that. Did anyone then go, oh but you only had a pass yeah no i'm sorry no if you'd only put more effort into those um those uh, scientific uh, articles that you're reviewing so you could have had a distinction that we would have picked you it doesn't work like that so i really want to take some of that external pressure away from you that the the evaluation that is happening through academia stops to have that same relevance when you exit academia but then being aware it, it of it does, but then sometimes it doesn't because if people got a two two at undergrad or a two two at masters, sometimes they are penalised for that, or they're asked to do additional things, or they're told it just doesn't count. You know, it's not good mm. enough. So um, yeah, certainly to, for yeah, assistant psych roles, yeah, that's, some that's people only on us. What I meant is my the sort of late la later on because this was obviously the PG dip I did on top of my, you know, MSc, the sort of equivalent to your declin psych. So. Yeah, absolutely. When you when you're looking to go into that bottleneck of the application process of wanting to get onto the doctoral training, absolutely, that does count on that point. I just meant what you do after that. So that's why it's so helpful that, like for instance, your doctoral training did only had passed and failed because beyond that point, when you come out and you are a budding psychologist, there are so many other ways of evaluating your skill set through you know really good supervision and having you know uh, reviews of of your work so yes yeah, so I yeah just to to reiterate that obviously it does it's not like it doesn't matter what grades you get as you go through your undergrad and assistant psych person things I just meant more 
I wish for people to put less pressure on themselves to nail every single thing perfectly because when you then start to work clinically in the real world at that point it doesn't matter it really doesn't um and I like your um thinking about other ways we can learn about not being perfectionistic as well and what I'm referring to is Michaela is the author of a wonderful book which I've got here if you're on YouTube with a lovely gold swirly pattern there which I really like The Lasting Connection by Michaela Thomas and that is a compassionate therapy guide for thinking about relationships isn't it Michaela talk Mm -hmm. us through briefly your book baby because I know we're not talking about relationships here but I think this is a lovely book and it's yeah it would be remiss of me not to allow yourself to not to allow you to to mention that um, when you're on my podcast that's very kind and compassionate of you Marianne um knowing how hard it is to do book promotion uh so the lasting connection I still wrote with with people who are high striving and perfectionistic in mind there's a whole chapter on connection not perfection because when we're really hard on ourselves and we don't give ourselves enough grace or self-compassion for mistakes we make, et cetera, it will have an impact on our relationships. So the book is based on the three different methods or models I use in my couple's work, which is, uh, as you mentioned, compassion-focused therapy, uh, but also acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, as well as behavioral couples therapy, which is sort of like a CBT version for, for couples. So I blended these three together and I couldn't find anyone who'd written a book like that on that subject so I decided that maybe I should so that's where the book baby was uh where it was coming from and I I feel like it's sort of there's a lot of things out there around communication training and how to improve your decision making obviously the work of uh, people like John Gottman and Julie Gottman so there's a lot of that out there already that I've cited in the book but I wanted to add to it is also how we can soften and soothe very sort of high triggering situations that we ultimately have when we live so close to someone in proximity with someone every day is that idea of how do I bring down that threat how do I de-escalate and soothe that through compassion so you have everything from mindfulness practices to breath work to uh, compassionate letter writing in the book to you know finding a way to talk to your inner critical voice in a different way so developing your compassionate self and and also how you are compassionate towards others so I saw a lot about how we are with the the other partner how you are towards them but I didn't see enough about how you are towards yourself so that's why I wrote the book on that subject on how to develop compassion for yourself and your partner well done and it's a really great read and actually I recommend it to clients who don't have relationships as well because it really I think helps people think about what a good relationship will look like and how it actually is supposed to enrich your life, not deplete it. And so you can still be your own person. It's important that you are. Um, And well done, because it's a really lovely book. And I know that Dr. Julie Smith and Deliciously Ella are big fans of it as well. So well done to you. Um, And another one of your babies um, is um, another thing that I like to, to listen to. And it is your pause purpose 
play podcast could you tell us a little bit about that as well Michaela yeah of course and you know incidentally someone really amazing has done an episode on grief on it uh Dr Marianne Trent if you want to check out that episode then search for Marianne Trent and grief and pause purpose play and you can listen to your fantastic host as well um it's a podcast that is it's a psychology podcast and it's aimed at high striving women um who put a lot of pressure on themselves to be perfect who might have really stretchy ambitious goals but as a result they then find themselves being overstretched or drowning in their ambition maybe then either overworking feeling you know burnt out or don't take action and hold themselves back with self-doubt fear and procrastination so basically the things we've talked about today that's the what I cover on the podcast and it's a mix of guest interviews where I talk about sort of everything related to perfectionism and then how we improve our well-being um, as recovering perfectionists uh, and solo episodes with me where I sort of do 10, 15 minutes sort of short nuggets of, of learning around this concept of perfectionism. So go check it out if you think you are a bit of a perfectionist and you're not quite sure it's just good in your life and you might want to consider the costs of your perfectionism as well. You can go and check it out. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So before we finish, before we share your contact details and everything, could you offer us your top tip for our audience for how to how to reduce the chance of burnout in this career of ours? Wow, mm, meaty. I think being really, really aware of what is the external pressure that you're under and what is the internal pressure that you bring with you. So the external pressure, to be aware of that if it's no longer serving you, and it might be that even as psychologists we can enter toxic environments or work, um, be it in the private or the public sector, if you're aware there's an external pressure there that is too heavy on you and you're about to experience burnout, then also think about how much internal pressure do you take with you by having unrealistic high standards or excessive demands on yourself to be a certain way. So being aware where that external and internal pressure meet and if they've come together as a perfect storm, that is an a, you know, opportunity for you to practice self-compassion that no wonder that I'm really stressed out here. No wonder I'm at the point of burnout because I'm in a high demands environment with unrelenting high standards on me and how I should perform as a psychologist or trainee. And then I have my internal world saying it's never good enough and I beat myself up for making mistakes. And you know what? In your in a high um, external pressure environment, you're also more likely to make mistakes because you're overworked. So that would probably be my top tip uh, to help you make wise decisions about when you stay when you leave and when you actually decide that this is not coming from the environment it's coming from me maybe reaching out to someone like myself or you know speaking to someone uh, in counseling therapy coaching whatever it might be to get you some help to soften those coulds and you know the musts and the shoulds that you have on yourself and it might be that you're able to thrive in a even in a high demands environment if you shave away some of the internal pressure Thank you so much. That's really, really useful stuff to consider. And now if people do want to get themselves on your mailing list and be able to respond to your mailing list emails like I do, what's the best way to do that, Michaela? Well, I obviously have a, have a bunch of nice freebies. So if you want to just sign up to the newsletter, you can go to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash newsletter. But if you actually want something for your time, you can go to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm and download my calm the overwhelm freebie where you can look through a checklist of physical and psychological signs of overwhelm 
some very quick, simple tips for what you can do to uh, implement some self-care and also the little objections, the, the stuff that gets in the way of you actually doing those things. Because as psychologists, we have lots of tools and tricks and tips for how to look after ourselves. And the biggest thing I see is that people don't tend to do it. So that implementation is very hard. So get on my mailing list if you want to have some ongoing tips on how you can work with this. And I'd love to for you to say reply like Marianne does and that will make my day. Brilliant. And if you have you got a favorite hangout on socials, where's the best place for people to like your stuff and engage with your stuff? Because that's always important, isn't it? It is. And yeah, so obviously I put a lot more out on socials than I than I do in the new newsletters as well. The newsletter, the the one that I have on Fridays, which is, may I swear, then it's, it's called Kid Friday. Uh, that newsletter uh, is all about letting go of these sort of rigid rules that we have for ourselves. That is exclusive to, to the mailing list. But otherwise, I hang out on Instagram, uh, the underscore Thomas underscore connection or Michaela Thomas on LinkedIn. So Instagram and LinkedIn. Perfect. And I regularly interact with you in both of those places and more. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and your kindness. I know that people will find what you've said really, really useful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I don't think it was perfect, but it was good enough. And I'm happy with that. It certainly was. Thank you, Michaela. What a pleasure it was um, to spend time on camera with one of my colleagues, but also um, someone who's become a dear close friend over the last couple of years. Hope you found it so useful listening to Michaela and I. I'd love any feedback. Come and join us over on the Aspiring Psychologist Community free Facebook group. Let me know what you think. Um, I love creating content that you want to listen to read, watch, depending on whether you're reading this on the blog, whether you're watching this on YouTube. Like, subscribe, comment if you are. Um, and if you're like, oh, I didn't know that was on uh, YouTube. We are. It's Dr. Marianne Trent over on YouTube. So come and follow and subscribe there. Um, and if you're listening to this on podcast, um, our most popular podcast platform is Spotify, um, followed then, I think, by Apple. If you're listening on Apple, take a moment to rate and review the podcast series as that helps us get shown higher up the listings and shows that we are creating useful content that our audience find useful. Regardless of whether you're watching, listening or reading, if you've got stuff that you'd like me to discuss or people you'd like me to chat with, then let me know. Get in contact with me via my socials. I am Dr. Marianne Trent, all places, or via my specific podcast page on the website, which is www.goodthinkingpsychology.co.uk forward slash podcast. And that's where you can access all episodes of the podcast via my website if you didn't want to access it via Spotify or any of the other means. Um, and you can also fill in a form. You can also, whilst you're there, record me a very quick audio testimonial, either about the podcast or one of the books to use within the show. So yeah, if you've got a couple of minutes, that would be so welcomed. And if you've got a couple of spare pounds in your pocket and you value the content, please do consider donating um, to help me with the podcast running costs, as that is something that I fund entirely myself. To find out information about that, check out the link in the show notes or go to my link tree, which you can 
access from any of my socials. Thank you so much for being part of my world and I will look forward to catching up with you for our next episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast, which will be available for you on Monday at 6am. Thank you so much for being part of my world and I'll catch up with you very soon. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.